Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Joining us on The Roy Green Show now is the Israeli ambassador to Canada, Ambassador Ido Moed. The ambassador has been with us his fourth visit to the program, and we greatly appreciate that. His first appearance with us was when he was the ambassador-designate, and that was on the 7th of October, which was, uh, ambassador, I can only imagine how difficult that would have been for you to, to join us that day, and so much has happened, and so much is, is still going on. Um, and I want to ask you about that, but before I do, and thank you for coming on today, but would you just please share your thoughts on the significance of Remembrance Day? You have IDF forces um, in action now. What is Remembrance Day? What, what, what does it mean to you personally? Uh, thank you, Roy, for having me. Appreciate it very much. Uh, yes, this is a special day today, uh, commemorating those who uh, fell in battle, um, we, to me, and I think to all, most of our listeners, it would signify the fact that we have to value very much what we have today, the freedom and liberty, um, the society, democratic society that we have, um, and understand that a part of it is also due to the sacrifice that some people made in the name of their country, because they understood that, just as Prime Minister Netanyahu just said, there is a time for peace, but there is also a time for war. There are times when evil is coming, and we have to confront it. And that means also that we have to uh, understand that we may need to sacrifice lives for that, and that is horrific uh, for all of us to contemplate and to comprehend but our countries, our societies, our democracies are there because we believe that that is the right way that humanity should conduct itself. And there are evil players around the world who feel otherwise, who want to oppress, who want to destroy, who want to kill, who want to eliminate others and don't give them, not give them the right to exist. And so at Remembrance Day, is a very special day. We also commemorated last week the 30th day of the attack that is part of Jewish tradition to go from the stage of mourning to sort of going back to routine, but we can't go back to routine because there are 239 hostages held in Gaza. Um, Fear Bibas is a 10-month-old baby that is held there captive. He's the youngest captive. And together with him, there are 238 other hostages that we have no idea about their their fate, their health, their uh, well-being. There's no access to the Red Cross, and nobody knows what's going to happen to them. And there is uh, we what we are calling for is an international effort to liberate them, to free them as soon as possible, unconditionally. Ambassador, um, would you speak please to the IDF actions in Gaza and the international reaction that we've seen and we're seeing, condemning Israel in public demonstrations, but as you said, uh, simultaneously the demonstrators managed to omit any mention of the 1,400 Israelis and nationals from 33 countries who were brutally slaughtered by Hamas and the 240 hostages still being kept by Hamas, including those babies and civilians in ill health. But what do you speak to the to the IDF actions and the the protests that are being experienced in many parts of the world? Um, I sense that these protests, um, some of it may be uh, based on sympathy to the Palestinians and uh, their plight, which is which is a political opinion, which you can understand, but a lot of it is based on pure uh, hate that is aimed not only at Israel, but at Jews in general. And the rise of anti-Semitism, which is, which is skyrocketing, is incredible. I think that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau also mentioned yesterday that 
some of these actions are amount to terrorism, actually. When, when there are shots fired at Jewish institutions and Molotov cocktails hurled at buildings and death threats, and many of those um, incidents that are growing with the day, that's very, very concerning. We have to understand that uh, whatever happens in Israel is, uh, is not just, it's not a political fight, actually, because you see that Hamas, steered by Iran, uh, is, is, there, is out to, to eliminate the state of Israel. Um, the president of Iran actually reiter- reiterated it today at a summit in, in uh, Riyadh, saying that Palestine should be from the river to the sea. And this is exactly the chant that you hear a lot of people repeating here. It's about the annihilation of the Jewish state. And so it is very concerning and very worrying that this, there is such a rise, that's such a quick rise. And, um, of course, we call for action. We call for everybody to understand what we are talking about when we are talking about anti-Semitism. So we talk about education, we talk about law enforcement, we talk about um, interventions when necessary so that um, order will be maintained and people will will not be harmed. I I think it's very scary when I hear uh, stories about Jewish students that are afraid to go to campus, to classes, because they are being called out as Jews. This is very, very worrying. Um, so I see the link between that and what is happening now. And uh, when I hear that some of the protest is based on issues such as international law, well, I think that Israel has been very transparent in the way that it applies international law, although I assume that many of the protesters have no idea what international law, the, the law of armed conflict, as it's called, uh, what it entails, actually, and what the law of proportionality and so on, they have no idea. But Israel weighs the outcome of an attack uh, against the number of, uh, against the, the, the potential uh, damage that may occur. And uh, when we know that the commanders who um, initiated the, the murder and mutilation and rape of so many thousands of Israelis, we know that we have to continue our work. We are weighing each and every attack separately. It's not a blanket decision, every and each attack. So, for example, there are talks right now about Al-Shifa Hospital in, in Gaza. Uh, we are, there's a lot of misinformation about that. There is no siege around this hospital. There is a site that is open to one of the streets. Uh, we're speaking directly with the hospital staff. Um, they requested that we'll help them with uh, trans- uh, transporting babies and pediatric department, and so to a safe hospital. And we'll assist. It. We'll assist in that. So uh, much of the information that is spread out there and instigate many of those attacks is is lacking. Is not getting to where it should. And people actually base their protests on on misinformation and disinformation. And that's also very worrying by itself. You posted um, an opinion piece by Jake Tapper from CNN on your Twitter feed. Um, And I reposted it on on mine. It's very interesting what Mr. Tapper points out. And that is that international media interviewed representatives of Hamas. And what they heard was, what the questions were asked about, why they don't use all those tunnels under Gaza to protect Palestinian citizens. And you can see the Hamas representative answering the questions right there on on, on the screen with a translation. And the Hamas representative says, well, those tunnels are there to protect us from the airplanes, quote, unquote. And then he carries on to say, I think he was asked, well, why don't you create bomb shelters for the residents, for the Palestinians? In Gaza, why don't you use those tunnels for the the residents, the civilians of Gaza? And he said, the Hamas representative said, "Oh, they're mostly uh, they're mostly refugees, so they're the responsibility of the United Nations, not us." But people don't hear that. No, that's, they're not aware of that. Yeah, that's very sad. Um, yesterday, um, Ambassador Dan, our ambassador to the United Nations. Um, 
spoke before the Security Council about uh, about the situation and about the uh, medical aspects of, um, of of how issues are taken care of. And you see that also in the United Nations, just as in some of the media, there is a very one-sided approach. So the United Nations Women Organization had not reacted at all, not said anything about the rape and about the sexual assault against Israeli women. Not a word. Uh, UNICEF has not said a word about the 34 Israeli kids that are being held as hostages in the tunnels underneath the ground in Gaza for 34 days. Uh, this is... This is really unbelievable, but we uh, we will prevail. We are determined to make sure that the Hamas rule will end in the Gaza Strip. We are very determined also to 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 make sure that their military capability will be destroyed, and that the threat that emanates from the Hamas will be eliminated. Um, in doing that, we will take care uh, as much as we can of the humanitarian needs of the population by creating humanitarian corridors. As you know, uh, there are these pauses every, every day for four hours. And as funny, as, as odd as it may seem, Israeli troops are protecting the Palestinians that want to move from the northern part to the southern part. In the last few days, about 200,000 of them left the northern part, and they were protected and shielded from Hamas by Israeli soldiers. Uh, we provide for the entrance of uh, humanitarian assistance as much as possible. There have been hundreds of uh, uh, shipments coming in, and uh, we are trying to do that while Hamas is doing exactly the opposite, and that is using the, the civilian population as human shield. And so also in, in, in the Gaza Strip, every now and then, you will see uh, Gazans trying to, to, to call for help, I saw a short video that I don't know, I cannot confirm that it's from Al Shifa Hospital, but there was a nurse crying that she had to take care of um, a boy's broken leg without morphine because that was taken away by Hamas. And she really, uh, 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 she was appalled. She didn't know what to do, that, but she has, of course, to treat the kid. And, and she just advises everybody to run away and stay away. It's horrific, but Hamas, holding the Palestinians hostage. And if we are talking about liberating Gaza, it has to be liberation from Hamas rule because the people of Gaza deserve a, a normal government that will take care of their interests and not abuse the monies and funds that came in to build this 500-kilometer network of tunnels. We should have could, had built houses and shelters. Could, could the IDF be uh, carrying on the military operation in a different way, and I, I, I don't quite understand all of the realities of the structure of, of Gaza. I know it's very compressed with millions of people. But the, the visuals of uh, civilians being killed and harmed and kids being hurt, that's very hard for people internationally to see. So is there, would there be an, uh, I don't, I mean, is there a different way to, to, to carry on the operation, or is this just... Is this military and Israel's doing everything it possibly can to limit the civilian injuries and casualties? Um, Gaza is the most densely populated area in the world, I think. And uh, it's a huge, huge challenge to uh, fight an organization, terror organization, a genocidal terrorist organization that also abuses their own people and, and uses them as, as, as human shields in the worst ways. Uh, but we have to fight it. So uh, you'll see uh, pictures emerging now of schools, uh, of classrooms, where just adjacent to the classroom, you'll find munition depots. You'll see uh, in the classrooms, by the way, plastic guns for kids to, to get used or to play with, which is, I don't think that's much of a toy. It does not help you to become more peaceful in your future. Peaceful in your future. Uh, they build, they dig the rocket launches underneath uh, kindergartens and schools and mosques. And so the, the question really is, militarily and also in terms of international law, how do you deal with a threat? The threat is there. 
Hamas launched 9,500 rockets into Israel. They have killed 1,400 civilians. They already reiterated they will do this again and again and again and again. They will not stop. So there is no other way but to eliminate the Hamas infrastructure, their leadership, and their, their, their weapons. And in order for us to do it in a way that will spare as many lives as possible, we've already sent out, dropped some, I think, some around 6 million uh, uh, pamphlets from the air. We've made thousands and thousands of calls to families to directly inform them or send them text messages to leave because we told them that their house are in danger and okay. their lives are in danger. Okay. Ambassador Moed, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but we have about a minute. Uh, what, what is your message to Canadian Jews who are terribly, terribly concerned for their safety now? Could we, should we be doing more in this country? Um, everybody needs to do more. It's not just Canadian Jews. I think that everybody has to understand what our values are, what do we stand for in society, and stand up for those values because this is the time. This is the time when freedom of speech and freedom of hate uh, are, are mixed and are confused. And I think that we all need to stand for each other. Okay. Jews, Muslims, Christians, together, and, live, and fight for our liberty and our democratic society. Vice Admiral Mark Norman, former commander of the Royal Canadian Navy and vice chief of the defense staff. Let me just say this. Admiral Norman is a Canadian hero who was forced into fighting for his national and international reputation as a highly respected military officer when the current prime minister, angry, Admiral Norman engaged in the on-time and on-budget delivery of a desperately needed supply ship for the Canadian Navy, HMS Asterix. Because without a supply ship, the Navy would have become a coastal defense force and no more, with no ability to project onto the open oceans of the world. Mr. Trudeau wanted the Asterix built by a different shipyard to the one Admiral Norman contracted with, and so Trudeau and his cabinet, I'm sure you'll remember, engineered a phony criminal charge against Admiral Norman. And the Prime Minister would actually then muse publicly about the Admiral's guilt. Trudeau and his cabinet layered themselves in taxpayer-funded lawyers in case they were called to testify in any criminal trial, but refused federal funding for the Admiral's legal costs. Canadians became outraged across the country, and when the phony criminal charge made it to court, the government prosecutor began looking for a towel to throw into the ring. She knew she had no case, and then the Trudeau government settled with the Admiral, which involves an NDA, non-disclosure agreement, effectively silencing Admiral Norman on the entire tawdry affair engineered by Justin Trudeau. I just wanted to repeat that. So it's truly my honor... Uh, to have become Admiral Mark Norman's friend over recent years, and it's a distinct privilege to speak with uh, this Honorable Defender of Canada and Canadians on Remembrance Day. Admiral Norman, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Roy, uh, and to you and your listeners. Um, I'm, I'm very humbled by your introductory comments, and I think, um, especially today, um, when we think of those who have sacrificed so much um, and those who continue to give so much uh, in the interests of this great country. Um, in fact, I reflect on uh, Terry's song. Um, I was reading something today in the Post about somebody telling a story about being in a gas station um, recently and the person not recognizing the poppy and, and describing what it was all about. And, and there was no malice in, in the encounter, but it just speaks to the fact that um, this is a, an incredibly important moment, uh, as Terry says, a pittance in time for those of us who are still here to remember those who are no longer with us, but help give us what we enjoy on a day-to-day -day basis. So there you go. Thank you. Thank you, Admiral. To you personally, what does Remembrance Day mean, personally? Yeah, it's a it's a difficult day um, in in many respects, and I I have a series of uh, reactions emotionally, mostly. Um, I think of those 
um, older veterans, uh, many of whom are uh, well into their 90s now. And uh, I, I read today that we've got about 10, less than 10,000 um, who served in the Second War or in Korea. But I also think about the new generation of veterans, um, many of whom are now in their 20s and 30s, uh, maybe a little older, but served in Afghanistan and served elsewhere um, and are carrying around uh, invisible wounds uh, associated with their service and sacrifice. And I think about a few friends that uh, are no longer around. And uh, yeah, so it's uh, it's kind of a mixed bag of uh, emotions. But uh, the point is that I do think about it. I do reflect. I do remember. But I have a personal connection, and I think part of the challenge is how how, how we make uh, how we make this connect um, with Canadians who perhaps don't understand um, the history or don't understand why this is so important, and it's not their fault. I uh, posted to uh, my Twitter account at the Roy Green Show. I, I posted a video that was filmed by the Durham Regional Police in Ontario. And it was a repatriation ceremony for one of the young veterans who died in Afghanistan. And they follow the procession down the Highway of Heroes, also known as Highway 401. And all you see, Admiral, is people everywhere on the overpasses, on the side of the highway, hands on hearts, waving flags, standing respectfully quiet. It's quite an emotional four and a half minute watch. And I would suggest to people, anybody listening, if you want to, go to my uh, Twitter feed, at The Roy Green Show, and watch that, The Highway of Heroes, the repatriation of, uh, of a Canadian soldier. To the, to the troops and the, and the, and the, uh, and the veterans uh, still with us, there's... I've had, I've had soldiers tell me that there's an increasing disrespect. They encounter an increasing disrespect and particularly when they're in uniform in a public environment, Admiral Norman, are you aware of that? And and, and what do you have to say about? It? I mean, what do you want to say about that? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not aware of a, a specific instance, but I I think I would say that I'm I'm sadly not surprised to hear that. Um, you know, I, I served just shy of forty years. Um, joined the peak of the Cold War. And, um, you know, it, it was really until the Afghanistan experience that you described uh, a few minutes ago that the, the current generation, if you will, and I know there's multiple generations of Canadians, but the, the current generation of the modern Canadian, if you will, actually had uh, any exposure to the kinds of sacrifices that were being talked about historically, but they that they weren't in a modern, a contemporary context. And so what we observed, those of us who were serving during that period, was we observed an enormous shift, a, a, a seismic shift uh, in the, um, the appreciation of, I'll call it average Canadians, uh, for those who were serving. Um, particularly in the military, but there was a spillover effect onto, onto others, like first responders and, and everybody else. And there was a sense of unity of purpose in that regard. There was an incredible sense of um, support from people. And, and we would hear stories, uh, uh, you know, in Tim Hortons, uh, just people going up to somebody in uniform and buying them a coffee and thanking them. And, and, it, and it, it was an enormously powerful period. And of course, now you know it, it's it's eleven years since uh, Canada w withdrew um, in, in a significant way from from our engagement in Afghanistan. And notwithstanding that, you know Canadians continue to be engaged all around the world doing really dangerous things. Um, but the, the point is that I'm not surprised that we've lost it because we tend to be very focused on the here and now, and um, we don't take. The, the time or the effort to put things in context. And, and I don't think it's helped that the perception of the military as an institution at the moment is a bit um, in question um, due to a whole bunch of problems uh, internally and 
issues around funding and leadership and, and a bunch of other things. So that's a long answer to your question, but that, that's an honest response to what I'm, I'm sad to admit is probably an, an increasingly likely situation. Okay, let me get personal with you. You joined the uh, Royal Canadian Naval Reserve or Navy Reserve as an ordinary seaman standard. So far, our paths were parallel. You became, I'm, I'm laughing because of what, what happened later with me, but you became the command officer of the Royal Canadian Navy from starting as an ordinary seaman standard in the reserve forces, which is the lowest rank in the Navy where you get yelled at by chief petty officers. Why did you choose to move forward and make the Navy and the military your life, career, and vocation, Admiral Norman? Well, a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, I grew up um, in a in a home, a household where there was a proud military heritage uh, of service. Um, my father was serving army officer at the time, um, and then we'd bounced around, and he'd done a lot of really interesting things himself. And uh, my grandfather uh, served during the first war. In fact, uh, fought at Vimy and Hill seventy, and uh, was one of the lucky ones who came home. Um, and then went on to serve in a different way during the Second War. Um, and so I was familiar with it, and, and I grew up around it, and, and it seemed like a logical thing to do. The Navy was just really all about sailing and boats and the water, and I was living in Kingston at the time. And uh, so there was, a, there was a personal appeal, and, and I signed up and enjoyed it, and, you know, 39 years later, <laughs> you and I met. Um, you know, so it's a, there's a lot in there, but we don't have time. So I'll just leave it at that. But the path to becoming the commanding officer, the command officer of the Royal Canadian Navy, must have been an extremely interesting, at the same time, challenging experience. Is there a highlight you can share with us? Well, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Um, I just had lunch uh, as a remembrance week. Uh, a few uh, of my old friends uh, got together, and um, they're all retired as I am now. But you know, they, they we all went through training together, and and they all retired at different ranks. And and the point that I'm getting at is that um, they all they all had a similar love for the institution, enjoyed what they were doing. Um, were passionate about it and, and, and really, you know, gave the, the bulk of their adult lives uh, to serve in the country. And they all retired at different ranks. And uh, when we get together, we're still, you know, Mark and Bill and Sean and Mike, and we're not, we're not Admiral and Lieutenant and Lieutenant Commander and Captain. And it's just who we are. Why I'm telling you that is because um, a lot of it, is uh, timing. A lot of it is good luck. A lot of it is um, opportunity. And uh, sure, yeah, you know, I worked hard, but what I'm trying to say is I didn't work harder than anybody else. Um, And um, I I feel very blessed to have been given the opportunities that I was to demonstrate to the Navy and the senior leadership of the day that I had the potential to to do um, things. And it just kind of compounded. And I know that's not the answer you or, or your listeners might be looking for, but it's the genuine answer. Um, you build an incredible uh, inventory of skills and experiences over 30-some years. And um, sometimes the, it's the right combination, and, and sometimes, um, you know, it, it, it's not. And, and rank in and of itself is not a reflection of qualities. Um, it's not a reflection of the caliber of the individual in my, in my personal view. And I know it's easy for me to say because of the rank I, I, I received when I retired, but, um, it's more a function of opportunity and timing. So there you go. Yeah, that's exactly the answer I wanted. I just want you to to tell us, share with us, uh, your thoughts. May I just for a moment ask you about I don't, I'm not looking for detail, but about how your career in the Navy and the Canadian Forces ended, which you cannot speak about publicly. I understand that. But Canadians nationally understand now 
It must have been such a terrible experience, but you increasingly had Canadians on your side as this situation developed. That must have been very important to you. Yeah, it was. And, and you know, it, and, and you, um, you know, you commented on it earlier and you and I have discussed it um, previously. It, it's enormously important. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you're right, I can't talk about the specifics, but I think what I can say is that um, it, it it was all about, and this is, this is what, in some respects, this is why this is an emotional day for those many of us um, who are still around. It was about something bigger than myself. And, um, and I think that that's one of the unifying characteristics of those who have served, those who've given the ultimate sacrifice, and those that continue to serve, is that they're doing something um, for a, a greater purpose, a higher purpose than themselves. And they're serving their country, they're serving the institution of the armed forces, they're serving the interests of peace and stability, whatever it is, um, it, it's something more than just a job. And that was all part of what was going on, and that was part of my thinking and motivation at the time. And to have people acknowledge that and, and recognize it, and to the degree that they could in the context of the situation, in essence, they were celebrating it. It wasn't about me, um, and I think it was, about, it was about what I represented and what the circumstances represented to so many people. Um, and they were motivated by the same thing in many respects. Is it was it was a higher purpose. It was a it was more than just themselves. And and um, I, I think that that is often what gets lost um, in our highly transactional, busy days um, when we're focusing and I, legitimately, in some respects, focusing on the here and now uh, as opposed to some of the bigger issues that that uh, really make us more than just individuals. They make us a society, they make us a community, uh, and they make us a country. German Vice Chancellor Robert Habeck certainly delivered a speech, which should have delivered a message. And it has been compared to some of the finest speeches in modern history. Habeck underlined Germany's commitment to the security of the state of Israel and tied it directly to Germany's responsibility for the Holocaust. Now, the vice chancellor, Habeck, condemned the rise in anti-Semitic incidents and warned that uh, the ban on supporting Hamas uh, has to be followed by a ban on public activity in support of Hamas. And Mr. Habeck stated the burning of Israeli flags during a demonstration in Germany and praising Hamas, terror, were criminal offenses. And he added, quote, any German citizen who does this will have to answer for such offenses in court. Those who are not German citizens will risk their residency status. Anyone who does not yet have a residence permit will have provided a reason to be deported. Now you have to find out if there's teeth behind the words. Uh, similar things have been said by other European leaders. President Macron of France was the first to step forward after October the 7th and uh, disallow demonstrations supporting Hamas. They happened anyway. But the president of France said, look, this is a criminal offense and uh, we're going to charge people and they will go to jail. And then he talked about deportation, which is what the... Uh, the Austrians picked up on, and uh, the Brits as well. Now, there's a huge demonstration in London today. Katja Hoyer, Dr. Katja Hoyer, joins us, visiting research fellow at King's College in London. She's an op-ed journalist for leading international publications, German-Anglo historian and author of Beyond the Wall, A History of East Germany, 1949 to 1990. It's a great book. Tremendous reviews. And uh, Dr. Hoyer is also the uh, author of the blog Zeitgeist, Z-E-I-T-G-E-I-S-T. Gotcha, because I speak German, I understand what that means. <laughs> that's, that's excellent. I'm, I'm glad to be back on your show, Roy. Good to be here again. Yeah, it's good to talk to you again. Ich spreche Deutsch. Ich bin in Deutschland zur Schule gegangen. 
Sehr gut, ich auch. <lacht> Ganz bestimmt. Okay, so <lacht> here we go. Let's try this language. Uh, look, before we talk about anything else, what happened in London today? How would you describe what I saw? I saw lots of uh, posts and a video on Twitter. It looked like a massive demonstration the police lost control of. Uh, what, what really what went on? Yeah, it was a huge demonstration. The police say about 300,000 pro-Palestine um, supporters came to London um, for a demonstration. And there was also a counter-demonstration by many um, sort of people who felt, or that was initially how it was built, who, who felt that um, Armistice Day, the 11th of November, when the country is remembering its, um, you know, the people that died in, in, in the various conflicts in the 20th century and the 21st century, isn't the day to do this. And that attracted in turn, uh, you know, people who came to London um, for, for violence, frankly. So it's, it escalated quite a bit on the streets. And as I understand it, over 100 people were being. Uh, arrested earlier today. So there were people who made their way to London specifically to engage as they did. Yes, that was, um, there, there were calls basically from, from several uh, organizations, some of them far right, uh, to sort of call for almost like a culture war kind of clash between the pro-Palestinian um, uh, people who were out there for the demonstrations and the um, you know people who saw it as their duty to sort of defend the armistice celebrations. Mm -hmm. so things settle down now. Uh, I think now they have, but during the day it seemed to um, it's it looked like it could have escalated at any point in time simply because the police were were of course massively outnumbered. Um, and were trying to sort of pen in the, the counter demonstrators in particular areas in London, and they were trying to break through. So it certainly looked quite uh, critical at several points today. Mm -hmm. Let's look at the German situation because of Vice Chancellor Robert Habeck's speech, which, um, which again, I've read. I've read it in German, and I've read the translation in, in English. And it's an excellent speech, and it's been described by some as being a a speech for at least the decade or, or maybe more than one decade. Um, what caused this speech? What is happening in Germany as far as anti-Semitism anti is concerned? Well, I think the 7th of October, um, when the um, horrific attacks happened in uh, in Israel, felt a bit of a turning point for Jews in Germany as well, because immediately you had a huge increase in anti-Semitic um, incidents all across the country, but particularly also in Berlin. Um, a synagogue, for instance, was attacked um, by people throwing Molotov cocktails at it, um, and that, of course, rings very, very terrible alarm bells with uh, Jews in Germany, especially this close um, to the anniversary of Kristallnacht, which um, was on the 9th of November, um, you know, 1938. So, um, you know, the idea that you once again have sort of arson attacks on synagogues, graffiti being sprayed onto the, the homes of, of Jewish people. Um, people, Jewish people don't really dare go out at the moment, being sort of visibly uh, Jewish in their clothing or their appearance. Um, and all of that, I think, has worried a lot of politicians, rightly worried politicians in Germany. And Robert Habeck, uh, being the leader of a centre-left party, the Greens, um, felt that he uh, clearly felt that he needed to make that speech and, and openly also addressed his own sort of political camp, if you will, many of whom are, are on the pro-Palestinian side, to basically say not to to cross over that threshold between sort of peaceful protests and actually, um, you know, kind of supporting a terrorist organization in, in Hamas, which many um, of the demonstrations in, in Germany seem to have done. So is there power behind those words or are they just powerful words? Well, that remains to be seen. What they have done so far is they've tried to ban um, several demonstrations where it was obvious um, or there were indications to start with that many kind of extremist uh, people were going to join them who were going to burn flags on the, the Israeli flag on the streets, who were going to, you know, chant sort of slogans supporting Hamas and so on, which is clearly, um, you know, veering into sort of illegal territory. So when, when that was, when there were indicators that that was going to happen, uh, demonstrations were simply banned. Of course, some of them went ahead in any case. Um, the, the police uh, uh, sort of 
try to crack down on them and and disperse them but they're often as in other countries often outnumbered and and not really capable of dealing with the sort of large congregations of um of people out on on the on the streets yeah it doesn't it's not a good optic when uh, when authorities are outnumbered by individuals supporting a terrorist organization is just really not a good optic for uh, underscoring the the power of a government of a, of a nation over people who are raising Hades in that nation. Now, so we have France as well with uh, President Macron saying, if you gather, it's a criminal offense, gather to support Hamas publicly, it's a criminal and extraditable offense. Similar statements have been made by uh, the leaders in Austria. I believe that uh, uh, the prime minister of uh, the UK has, has also talked um, deportation. Is that just, is that just talk? Same question, I guess. Um, well, again, it's difficult. I mean, they're not even at the moment able to um, extradite or deport people, even whose asylum, you know, seeker applications have been turned down because quite often, you know, there, there are problems kind of returning people to their home countries because they don't, you know, accept people back. There's paperwork that's missing. So, you know, in, in general, it's difficult to, to deport people for whatever reason. Um, and more widely, I would say what all of the leaders in Europe um, are realizing at the moment is that just the wider issue of immigration is very tight, like sort of, you know, very tightly tied to this current debate about um, Israel and Palestine because it's made into a bigger kind of culture clash, if you will, between different groups. Um, and it's just a, a kind of convenient means, I would say, in my sort of quite cynical um, mind uh, to sort of try and reassure populations that people are, you know, on the case with um, a sort of, you know, different groups of um people that have come into the country potentially with with uh, anti-Semitic attitudes. And that's, I think, one way of, of showing the population that they're taking the, the kind of issue of, of immigration more seriously than, um, than perhaps they are in, indeed. At least the words are sort of there. I suppose that's the um, one of the, the ways in which that's um, used at the moment politically. Yeah. I never believe a politician when a politician says, I feel your pain. I just... <laughs> just... It's just ridiculous. But they have a responsibility. Now, you wrote an op-ed, which is, I think, extremely important to, to, to know about. Tell us about Anne Frank being written out of a German um, school, a little kid school, because of the school's inclusion policy. Well, what's What's going on? Yeah, so this is a it's a nursery um, for a sort of kindergarten type um, place uh, that is called um, the Anna Frank Kindergarten, and has been since the since the nineteen seventies. Many places in Germany are, are called after Anna Frank, the the German Jewish girl uh, who ended up being murdered in in Bergen Belsen concentration camp um, because her, her diary is so famous, of course, and also just you know the the lessons that can be learned from that horrific part of history. And the nursery felt that on the one hand side, it was difficult to uh, sort of get her story across to young children. Um, and on the other side, it was offensive to uh, some of the uh, sort of new groups of students that they have, by which they meant people with a, a sort of migration background, as they as they phrased it. Um, so they were trying to change the name into something more uh, sort of mundane. Uh, so the new name was supposed to be World Explorer. Um, so I think I was, it was quite reassuring that there was a lot of pushback against this and in the end they had to back down. So, you know, local politicians as well as uh, the public outrage basically have in the end mounted up so much pressure that, that, that it's now not going ahead. Mm. Um, but I thought it was quite worrying when, you know, basically people who are involved in local politics and local education feel that they cannot get the story of Anna Frank across to people anymore and that the story is offensive to, to some people coming to the country. Um, I, I found they're both very, very worrisome kind of reasons to, you know, to sort of write Anna Frank out of that, um, out of that local town. Yeah. Can't outthink those who aren't thinking, Katya. Um, <laughs> as a historian... And a historian with German roots, and uh, your book, uh, History, Beyond the Wall, A History of East Germany, 1949 to 1990, is just amazing. What are your concerns about what's happening today? And I, this question just occurred to me. Is there a difference in attitude 
in the parts of Germany that were once West Germany and East Germany today? Um, I think in terms of this conflict, the, the bits of history that clash there is not so much East and West. I think it's more a sense that on the one hand side, kind of Germany needs to uh, continue to bear the responsibility of the crimes it committed during the Second World War, namely the Holocaust. And as a result of that, it um, sort of that's the reasoning behind the, the sort of staunch support for Israel um, at sort of state level. Um, but on the other hand, there's also a constant accusation whenever Germany decides to ban something or suppress, um, you know, the expression of, of freedom of speech in the widest sense that, you know, there's also immediately the accusation that we've seen this before. And, and you know, back in the day, protests were were squashed and, and plurality of thought wasn't allowed. Um, and immediately the same history is drawn upon, you know, to say that there needs to be freedom of speech. So I think those two narratives, as far as the... Um, a sort of conflict in, in Israel and Gaza is concerned, those two histories seem to clash. So there were protesters out there chanting things like free Palestine from German guilt, um, you know, where there's kind of an assumption there that it's it's uh, sort of Germany's guilt about the Holocaust alone that is, is making Germany stand on that side mm-hmm. uh, rather than the other. So I think those are the contested histories. But one way or another, Germany is certainly still very much haunted by its own um, past in the way that public discourse is happening today. Okay, have 30 seconds. Tell us about your blog, Zeitgeist. <laughs> um, so Zeitgeist is me as a, as a sort of German or somebody of German origin, uh, thinking about German history and politics and, and tying this in with the sort of things I see and do on a day-to-day basis, particularly as I'm traveling around the world um, at the moment, <laughs> uh, talking about East Germany because of my book um, a lot. And that tends to often tie in with, um, you know, the, the things that I see and do in various different places. Um, so it's a mix of a blog and, and some history and politics thrown in as well where do we find it um it's just called zeitgeist so if people google zeitgeist and, and my name katja hoyer um it'll come up okay so katja hoyer is h-o-y-e-r yeah. I, I used to spell it initially i spelled it like the watch company and then i thought how come i'm not getting a return <laughs> here anyway katja it's great to speak with you again thank you so much for the time thank you roy flash as wheels touch down Returning heroes homeward bound Salutes and handshakes all around Their loved ones standing by Tears of joy flow as little ones Leap into loving arms so thumbs up for the heroes of the home front. Lower the flags, raise our glasses high. When troops are called to go, home front heroes serve at home. So thumbs up for the heroes of the home front. So that's a, that's a new piece of music written by my guests uh, with us now, uh, Terry Kelly, the uh, writer, singer of the uh, traditional Remembrance Day song, Now Pittance of Time. You'll hear a bit of that later on in this segment. And uh, hey, Terry, how are you? I'm well, Roy. Did we wake you up? Um- <laughs> no, I just got a, I just got out of the car for four hours. Oh. So I'm wide awake now. Right? Okay, good, good. <laughs> just thought. I think we woke him up. Um, <laughs> uh, Mark Birchall is with us as well, co-national organizer for the Canadian Walk for Veterans, and Mark co-wrote the Heroes of the Homefront with Terry. Are you awake, Mark? I'm with you. Uh, I am with you, Roy, and it's great to be on your show once again. And you mentioned that Terry and I co-composed the song, and I, I think it's very symbolic of Canadian unity that we wrote this song with Terry sitting on the East Coast in Halifax and me sitting on the West Coast in White Rock, South Oh, that's Korea. great. That is. How did that come about? Well, actually... Um, we brought Terry Kelly out uh, here to for the grand opening of Legion Veterans Village, which is the first of its kind center of excellence for uh, 
veteran mental health in Canada. So Terry came out and he did his performance. And as many great decisions are made, that evening we sat over a beer and I said to Terry, you know, it's been quite a while since you had a new song, since a pittance of time. And, you know, it's time for a new one. And he said, you know what, you're right. And uh, so anyways, we got talking more and I was telling him about the theme for the Canadian Walk for Veterans this year, Heroes of the Home Front, which pays tribute to military families. And as soon as I said it, Terry said, oh, my God. That's the name of the new song. Okay, so don't 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 answer all my questions at once, Mark. Okay, <laughs> just settle down. Just settle down, Mark. <laughs> I love it. You know, I get I get these people on the air, and I've known Mark and I've known Terry for a long time. Uh, but you ask him a question, and then they can't stop, and they answer all your questions <laughs> before you can ask another one. And then after three minutes, it's okay. Thanks a lot for the time. Bye bye. <laughs> so settle down, guys. Uh, I have to say, though, I listen to Heroes of the Home Front, and it's a, it's a really wonderful tribute because it's a, it's a tribute to the veterans. It's a tribute to the current um, members of the CAF, currently serving members of the armed forces. It's a tribute to the first responders, and we're going to get into that. But before we do that... Just remind us, please, because we're going to play a little bit. Actually, hang on to that thought. I'm going to get to that in a bit. What is the personal significance? I like to ask people that question on this date. For me, it's my dad, who at 19 years of age was a Dunkirk right, and fought in that battle and was captured by the Germans. 19, got away and was walking in France in a British uniform until he managed to steal some clothing from a clothesline. Then he walked down the streets, the roads of France, with German convoys going in the opposite direction, and he waved to the German soldiers. And they waved back. If they had stopped to question him, they would have realized right away he was a British soldier, out of uniform, and they would have shot him. Wow. So this, and, and, and uh, I asked my dad, he died when I was 12. I asked him, as a kid would, yeah. So, how did you escape? Because I know a little bit, right? They taught us, I went to school in England at the time, and they taught us British history when we were five years old. And I asked him, how did you, how did you, how did you get away? How did you escape? His answer to a little kid, to his son, young son, was, we didn't like it, so we left. <laughs> that was his exact quote. I've never forgotten that. Then he fought with the French resistance for some time. Because, you know, he was in France, so they found him. Fortunately, they found him. And he fought with them, stayed with them, and then he made his way to Switzerland and met my mother, and that's why we were talking. So... And we're, we're delighted that he did. What? <laughs> what did you say? We're delighted he did. <laughs> what, I like a what? The problem that is, I'm, I'm glad he met your mom. <laughs> what, what, I like a what? No, I'm delighted he met your mom. Oh, it's, you're talking Newfoundland English. <laughs> <laughs> so, look, let me ask you guys, for, let me start with you, Terry, because you really made a massive impression on Canadians with a pittance of time, and I'm sure Heroes of the Home Front will do the same thing. What is the significance of uh, of Remembrance Day to you? Well, it's, it's for me, it's all about gratitude. Um, and, um, you know, if uh, things hadn't turned out the way they did, and if your dad hadn't been one of the French resistance, uh, Terry Kelly, who's totally blind, would not be here today, as it turns out. So, um, yeah, and, and my mom and dad wouldn't have, wouldn't have had an opportunity to meet. So, yeah, uh, so it's, it's gratitude. And, um, and, and Roy, Roy, I may have mentioned this to you before, but when I went to the school for the blind in Halifax, my a lot of my teachers and parent, uh, my house parents, I was nine months a year away from home, that most of them were retired Army, Air Force, Navy people, and they did not baby us. They didn't overprotect us. They taught us to be accountable and said, "You're basically, you're blind, get over it. Let's, let's focus on the things you can do. And that's my life. Yeah, you're an amazing man. You really are. As are you, uh, Mark Birchall. Before we talk about, uh, and I want to ask you about, as well about the Canadian Walk for Veterans, 
But what's the connection for you, the personal connection to Remembrance Day? Well, every Remembrance Day, of course, when I bow my head in silent remembrance, I remember my father, Sheridan Birchall, who was in military intelligence during the Second World War. And um, he left before my oldest sister was born, so he didn't meet my oldest sister for two years after she was born and when he finally returned. And my dad was part of the liberation of Holland. And uh, because of being in military intelligence, he was also sent at the um, sent right to the front uh, when they moved into Germany to take back Germany. And ironically enough, he had a couple of jobs. One was to free the POW camps. Uh, but the second job he had was to move into a town and become mayor, restore order, and then he had to rope somebody else into being mayor, and then his job would be to move on to the next town and become mayor there and do the whole thing all over again. Wow, yeah. So here you are, uh, you meet in, in British Columbia before you write Heroes of the Home Front, and you meet, you make this great decision over a beer, maybe two, and and the idea comes to, did it come to both of you that, hey, we're going to write another song. We're going to write a song for Remembrance Day, but we're going to include first responders. How did that come into play? Well, I'll, I'll do a quick one on that. Sure. So first first of all, we're sitting there, and, you know, I, I, have, a, I have a full album dedicated to uh, servicemen and women and a, a little bit to the re responders. And we just got, you know, I said, it's, you know, we... we together came up with the idea that we, we need a song that includes first responders. We had a long discussion about that. But I said, Mark, just start writing some phrases down. I need a title. And we, we're doing that, and all of a sudden he tells me what's about his coin, challenge coin, for this year's Walk for Veterans. And I, he said, you've been hiding that. You know, heroes of the home front. What a fabulous phrase. So, uh, yeah, so it was, it was, it was time after writing a pittance of time to start including the first responders beyond the servicemen and women, because they work together, you know, through the fires at home and the, and the floods and all that jazz. So it sort of came that way and fell, fell out of a big beer glass. A big beer glass. A very big beer glass. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I know you guys. Um, let's, let's listen a little bit. Again, to Heroes of the Home Front, written by Terry Kelly and Mark Birchall and performed by Terry. Cameras flash as wheels touch down Returning heroes homeward bound Salutes and handshakes all around Their loved ones standing by of joy flow as little ones leap into loving arms. So thumbs up for the heroes of the home front. Lower the flags, raise our glasses high. When troops are called to go, home front heroes serve at home. So thumbs up the heroes of the home front. Heroes of the home front. Terry Kelly, Mark Birchall, Terry singing it. Terry and Mark wrote it together. Where where can we find it? I mean, I found it on uh, just because you sent it to me. But where can our listeners find it? Well, right ahead, now, Mark. if you were to go to the Canadian Walk for Veterans uh, website, so that's Canadian Walk for Veterans forwards. Dot com. There's a, on the uh, navigation bar, there's a line that says Heroes of the Home Front. And if you click on that, uh, it'll take you to a page where you can access the song. Terry and I launched the song at, on Parliament Hill at the Sam Sharp Breakfast in February. And so we put it on that page there so that folks who attended the breakfast, the Sam Sharp Breakfast, would be able to hear okay. the song, and now all of Canada can hear it. And you can find it on Google as well, right? Yeah? Where, where's that? Where, you can find it on Google as well. It should be there. It's a, the, 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 I guess the official launch is, 
still about to happen, but okay, I, I'm sure that would give it as well. And okay. we're working on the video, so we'll have it in mind on the YouTube. Channel. All right, so uh, we'll talk. We'll talk again about that. Um, so, uh, Mark, tell us a bit about the uh, the Walk for Veterans this year. How well is it responded to? Was it responded to? And what are the particular challenges that you identify that veterans are facing? We remember this Prime Minister saying publicly. Uh, we what was it he said? Veterans want too much more than we. Uh, yeah, veterans was, want more than we was, can give right now. He he said that he said at a town hall in Edmonton to a to one of our representative veterans, uh, Brock Blazik. Uh, he said that um, veterans are asking for more than they can give right now. Mm-hmm. Which is ironic because that's implying that there isn't enough money to provide the uh, benefits that the government has promised. But it's ironic, I say, because they make these big announcements through uh, the government of all the benefits and the new uh, things that they're allocating money for to veterans. And then every couple of years, they return about $1.5 billion of unspent money back to the Treasury. So it always asks, it begs the question, well, why don't you just spend it on the veterans? Right now they're running about 36 months uh, lag time to process a, uh, a benefit and on average. And, um, you know, a lot, of benef- uh, a lot of veterans suffering from mental health issues, they just can't wait that long. No, and can't. it's not because the money isn't there. That's the true. money's obviously there, or they'd yeah. have nothing to return to the Treasury. Okay, thank you. That's so important. Uh, people have to remember this. Now, Terry, we're going to play a little bit of uh, Pittance of Time, but for people who may, a few people who may not have heard it, remind us what inspired this song. So I'll not, I'll not shell it, but um, as I mentioned earlier, my, my surrogate parents, when I was away from home, were, were the retired Army Air Force Navy people. Uh, and so my wife and I were heading for the cemetery uh, one year, and my wife had just finished with a knee operation, so we needed uh, something for her to lean on to get to the cemetery. We ran into traffic. Uh, we're going to be late. We're going to miss it. We walked into the drugstore. We're going to rent this piece of equipment, and it's two minutes to 11, and to our great pleasure, the manager of the store said, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, please join me for two minutes of silence in honor of our veterans and peacemakers. And so I said, stopping the flow of commerce in this big joint like this, you know. And 11 o'clock comes. Here, I'll finish the story real quick. 11 o'clock comes. The place goes dead quiet, except one man who's trying to finish. He wanted something. And I, where I can't see, I'm not sure who not sure what he was pointing at. But he said, I want that one over there. And the poor young clerk was trying to quiet him down. 20 seconds go by. I put my finger to my lips. I go, shh. And he didn't stop. He wasn't impressed. And here's the kicker, Roy. He went. He left the store before the two minutes were up. And I didn't know she was there at the time. A little girl, eight, nine years old, said, Daddy, that was embarrassing. You were supposed to be quiet during that time. And I thought, wow. From the mouths of babes yeah so let's listen uh, to let's listen to a little bit of terry kelly this is the story you just heard it that this song pittance of time was based on they fought and some died for their homeland They fought and some died Now it's our land Look at his little child There's no fear in her eyes Could he not show respect For other dads who have died Take two minutes, would you mind? It's a pittance of time For the boys and the girls who went over In peace may they rest May we never forget why they died It's a pittance of time God forgive me Pittance of time, Terry Kelly. 
Thank you for that song, Terry. You always say thank you for that song. It's such a wonderful reminder of Remembrance Day. You're right. And that, that whole story is captured on the video on my YouTube channel. Okay. What's the YouTube channel? We always channel? have to ask people when they visit the YouTube channel to subscribe, and that, that helps. Okay. What's the YouTube channel? Terry Kelly, it's my official YouTube channel. Okay. All right. Terry Kelly on YouTube. And Mark... Uh, thank you for everything you do for the veterans with the Canadian Walk for Veterans. Thank you for sending me that commemorative coin this year. I always appreciate that, appreciate that and like to contribute as I can. And uh, guys, it's such an incredibly important day. And it's a day that we need to remember those who represent us today in the military, who will fight for us, who are willing to die for this country and for Canadians. And their forebears who did exactly that. Um, Mark Birchall, Terry Kelly, always great to speak with you both. Pleasure and an honor to know you both. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you, Roy. Thank it's you, Roy. great to be on your show, and thank you for having us on uh, at these important times. All right, gentlemen. Thank you very much. And, Roy, you are one of the heroes of the home front with the work you do, and thank you so much. Oh, appreciate that, Terry. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.